So there's no Jewish synagogue because there's not at least 10 Jewish families. So he just comes to Lystra and they have this uh, temple devoted to Zeus on the outside of the city wall. And when Paul comes to Lystra, he sees a guy there who's been blind, or excuse me, lame from birth. And Paul looks at him, evidently starts preaching Christ, and the guy gets healed miraculously. Well, that's an incredible sign and wonder. So the whole city gets all fired up. And here was what's going on. In the city of Lystra, who do they call Paul? Is it Hermes? Okay. And they call Barnabas Zeus. What had happened about a 100 150 years earlier, his legend said Zeus and Hermes had visited Lystra, then left, but with a promise to come back and do miracles. So when this happened in Lystra, they assumed that Zeus and Hermes had revisited them. Zeus was Barnabas, and Hermes was Paul because he was like the chief spokesman. So the people get the priest of this temple, and they put together this sacrifice, and they're going to worship Paul and Barnabas. Now, they're speaking in the Bible, it says there, Lyconian language. In other words, Paul didn't understand at first what's going on here. Then he realizes, oh, by the way, Paul, they're going to sacrifice to you and they're going to worship you. What? And so then he rends his garments and he absolutely uh, sets them straight. And then while this is happening, Jews from Antioch and Iconium come to Lystra, get the people all stirred up, and so the people that yesterday were worshiping you stone you today. Don't you hate when that happens? And he's dead. And Barnabas is looking at his buddy, dead. And they're encircled by a group of new converts, and your leader is dead. Uh, Somebody agree with me? Precarious? Vulnerable? What's going to happen to this fledgling church? Barnabas says, how about if we get together and surround Paul, and how about if we pray? And as they pray, in the name of Jesus, what happens? He is raised up from the dead. Now, if you're a new convert, and you've just been two months old in Christ, and you've been hearing about Jesus being raised from the dead, but now you actually see Paul raised from the dead. Would you agree with me, please? This would impact your life. This would have a memorable impact into your newfound faith. This would bring you into a place of deeper faith, deeper trust. Wow! This is really true. Jesus Christ really is alive. And so Paul leaves Lystra, and if you look at your map, he makes his way, it's about 60 miles, and he comes to a place, number 11, called Derby. Derby. And let's read this account. If you look at verse 20, But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. What happens in Derbe, which is their fourth city, is 
Another church is started. But what I want you to, to realize now, no persecution. In Iconium rods, excuse me, Antioch rods. In Iconium, threat of stoning. In Lystra, you're actually stoned and raised up. In Derby, now hear me, church. The devil would have loved to wipe out Paul in Derby. And heaven said, no more. Enough. I take great comfort in this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Write that scripture down next to Derby. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to endure. You are an eighth grade Christian. You know what that means? God's not going to let you take a ninth grade test. Somebody say amen. <laughs> the eighth grade test will be challenging enough, but he won't let you get tempted beyond what you are able, and heaven said no more. Now, if you look at your map, in the natural, very logically, Paul and Barnabas, you would think, would just keep going east. It's a short distance to Tarsus. And then you just make the bend around, and you're back to Antioch, which is home base. That's the church you were sent out from. It's not that far of a distance. And we don't know who heard the word. Maybe it's Paul, maybe it's Barnabas. But one of them heard this word and conferred with the other and said, God spoke to me today. Really? Yeah, it's a real clear word. Okay, what is it? we got to go back. Hello? we got to backtrack. Really? We have to backtrack, and we have to visit the churches. And we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to set in elders and give them leadership. Number two, we're going to tell them the rest of the message. And here's the rest of the message. Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. And so they backtrack from Derby to Lystra to Iconium to Antioch. New churches, encourage them, build them up. Totally courageous. Places where you've been beaten, stoned. Paul's totally fearless. You make it back to Antioch. Now guess what? you got to do that same 90-mile walk on that very dangerous road all the way down to Perga. And then on Perga, you catch a ship. And it's now in the summer of 48 A.D. It's been two years. A missionary journey for the ages. Four churches have been started. You haven't been on any one of them more than four months. You get on that ship, and I want you to just see Paul and Barnabas sailing, maybe reflecting on the two-year journey. Wow. Wasn't that something? And maybe they begin to reflect upon a few humorous moments, a few dangerous moments. Maybe tears are flowing. Praises are being offered up to God. Thank you, Jesus, for fresh ecclesia have been born apostolically. Let me tell you how Paul looked at his churches. He looked at them as children. Here's what he would tell them. As a pure virgin, I engaged you to Jesus in order to present you someday to Christ as his bride. He loved his churches And where he was so excited is they were churches rooted, grounded, and established in his 
gospel message of grace and faith alone in Jesus Christ. Totally free to enjoy the Lord. So he comes back to Antioch at the end of chapter 14. He comes back to Antioch. And what they do when they arrive, verse 27, they gather the church together and they begin to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. He's going to be there for about a year. Everybody's fired up. Wow. First missionary trip. Four churches. A lot of suffering, yes. A lot of joy, even more so. Four precious churches. Now, word gets back to Jerusalem that Paul has started four churches in Galatia. And furthermore, he's preaching against the law. And Jerusalem's not happy. So what happens between the last verse? Now, you're going to have to trust me. And if you want to read F.F. Bruce, and if you want to read other literature, I can get you in touch with, because Luke is sketchy. But I'm not making this up. Something profound happens between the last verse of chapter 14 and the first verse of chapter 15 that is not recorded in Acts, but we do see it in Galatians. So I want you to write in your Bible in the book of Acts, if you're free to do so, write, Peter comes to Antioch. Peter comes to Antioch. Barnabas is there. Paul isn't. Some have wondered where he was, but he was out maybe evangelizing in the near countryside when Peter... Now, this is a big deal. I can't emphasize this enough. Peter is, in many ways, the man. This is the first apostle of the first church. Peter is known as a miracle worker. Peter's reputation is, wow, his shadow has healed people. He's got a lot of power. He got a lot of miracles. And so the Antioch church is really excited upon Peter's visit. And so when he comes, everybody's fired up. And Peter, very similar to Barnabas, he sees the grace of God at work. He sees what's going on, this marvelous church in Antioch of Jews and Gentiles. And so he's really excited. And he's fellowshipping with everybody like nobody's business. And everything's cool and everything's wonderful until they come. Paul's not there at the time. Now, you can get this in Galatians. It's very clear. Peter comes to Antioch. And all of a sudden, when they come, here's what they say. We got a letter from James authorizing us, and you guys don't have the full message. This is a false thing that's happening up here in Antioch. And in order for you to really be saved, not only do you trust Jesus, you have to relate to Moses. And we got a knife. Well, the Gentile believers in Antioch, their eyes got really big. And then these guys, claiming to be from James, were so strong in their elder brother spirit, a fear is released, and Peter stops eating with the Gentiles and only eats with the Jews. This spirit is so strong, Barnabas himself, think of it now, backs off and is only eating with the Jews. Over here, you got a 
bunch of Gentiles totally confused, feeling second class, feeling, what's this all about? What in the world is going on? And while Peter is there, towards the end of his stay, there's a big banquet, it says in Galatians, that is established in Peter's honor, kind of a farewell banquet. But you got this separation thing going on between Jews and Greeks. Paul walks in publicly to that banquet and in front of the entire assembly rebukes Peter. This is recording Galatians chapter 2. Now, this sends shockwaves first to Peter and then it sends shockwaves eventually to Jerusalem and one of the great criticisms will be Paul rebuked Peter. Well, then the whole place kind of goes into an uproar. But Barnabas repents and gets back with Paul. Peter, bless his heart, repents and walks 40 days back to Jerusalem. In the meantime, these Judaizers, is what they're called, have a great debate and a great uproar between Paul, Barnabas, and the rest of the leaders there in the Antioch church. So this Furor is raised up concerning salvation and the importance of how does somebody really get righteous before God? And do we actually have to be circumcised and by that come under the law in addition to grace? Do we have to, you know, and so they wrestle with this. And here's what it says in Acts 15, verses 1, 2, 3 there. They have great debate among themselves. So they decide to resolve the issue. So the Antioch church says, all right, we're going to send Peter. Excuse me, Peter's already in Jerusalem. We're going to send Paul and Barnabas, Titus, some of the other key young guys. We're going to go to Jerusalem. And what you have in your Bible is called the Council of Jerusalem, where this issue is going to be resolved. But here's what happens. Not all the Judaizers went to Jerusalem. Some of them in secret, instead of going south, went north, went through Tarsus, starting with Derby, then Lystra, then Iconium, and then Antioch. They infected Paul's precious young four churches birthed by grace with their false message. Paul has no clue. He's on his way to Jerusalem to resolve the salvation issue. Now, if you go in your Bibles to Genesis, uh, Acts chapter 15, there's a little thing here. I, I, I love this phrase because if you look, uh, church, on your map here from Antioch to Jerusalem, as we said, it's about 350 miles. What I want you to see is all along that route were pockets of believers, okay? And they would spend a night, maybe two nights. You know, it's a 40-mile, 40-day journey. And here's what the, the Scriptures record. It says, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia, Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. I love that. Paul and Barnabas are going south, bringing great joy to every pocket of believers they come across. 
you can just envision before this when the Judaizers go north on their way to Antioch, rather than bring joy, they release fear, doubt, condemnation, and unbelief. And they were so relieved when Paul and Barnabas make that journey, and so finally they make it to Jerusalem. Well, they go back and forth. You can read the story there. They go back and forth in Acts 15. James is presiding over this council. He's the apostle of the Jerusalem church. And so people start giving testimony. And in Acts 15, Peter stood up. He says, brethren, and you got to love it, what Peter now says. Because what that means is Peter got back on board. Wow. Peter got back on board. Peter repented. And Peter testifies to what happened to him with Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11. And Peter starts talking about the gospel of grace once again. Peter is then followed by Barnabas and Paul. And they give testimony. That's verses 12 uh, there. But what happened among these four churches? And then finally, starting with verse 13, James, the apostle, gets this revelation from heaven. So word of wisdom. And what the word is that he gets is Amos 9, verses 9, 10, 11, 12. I don't know if that's in your notes, but it's Amos chapter 9. Is it in there? All right. That's that's very, very important. Bless James. Now, James and Paul never really fully got along. In fact, some would go so far to say James wrote his epistle in a kind of balance towards Paul's message of grace. Martin Luther hated the epistle of James. He called it the straw epistle. He wanted to remove it from the New Testament. <laughs> All right? Uh, you know, but anyway, James and Paul, but, but on this foundational crucial is, issue, James get a revelation. He says, wow, God just showed me. We're not going back to Moses' tabernacle. We're going back to the tabernacle of David, Mount Zion. And he quotes the prophecy in Amos 9 verses there. Therefore, it is my judgment and my opinion that we trouble our fellow Gentiles no further. They don't have to be circumcised to be saved. They don't have to come under the law to be saved. It would be good if they abstain from these two areas, not for salvation, but strangling of blood and sexual fornication, Back off, be careful there, because those are particularly offensive to Jews. No point in totally turning them off. Has nothing to do with you being saved. You're saved by grace, you're saved by faith, you're justified as a free gift, and you're righteous in God's sight. They write a letter, James signs it, Paul is relieved, Barnabas is relieved, and then it is agreed that Silas and Judas, two prophets, accompany the letter back to Antioch and verbally restate what's in the letter, and they go to Antioch, and everybody's happy. It seems like the issue is resolved, and everyone comes into peace. Shortly after... A knock on Paul's door where he's staying. A guy comes in. He's ashen white in his face. And he has a report. Paul. 
your four churches are in bondage. They've been picked off. They've been seduced. They've been bewitched by a false gospel. As this report hits Paul, you have to understand, anger begins to get released. It's righteous indignation. He is hot. Not only is he upset with his churches being infected, his message, remember what I said this morning, the greatest trial for Paul ever to deal with was his message altered, changed, distorted. So he is literally going ballistic apostolically. And he gets this report. Now let me find where I'm at in my notes. If you look at the bottom of page 12, this is A.D. 49. And before he dictates this letter, this is what he knows. And we know he knows this because all these issues are ultimately addressed in the letter. Someone from Jerusalem went to Galatia, claiming to be from James, claiming to have authority, and they have authority to give you the true message. They would say Paul preaches a partial gospel. You need to be justified by Christ and Moses. Oh, by the way, Paul's not really an apostle because he wasn't sent out by the Jerusalem church. Oh, also, Paul is a coward, and he's afraid to tell you the full message. And oh, by the way, he rebuked Peter publicly in front of the whole church. So what you have on the bottom of page 12 in our outline is Galatians, Paul's first letter. And on page 13 at the top, I have a few foundational things. I would say Galatians, in some regards, is my favorite epistle. I love Ephesians, too. I really like Colossians. (laughs) you got to love Romans. (laughs) Galatians was by far the most copied letter of Paul. What he did was he, he, he dictates this letter under an incredible anointing. He is upset, but he's anointed. He didn't write it. He preached it. And he has a secretary in the corner writing this thing down about as fast as he can. And part of his letter is to address the issues that were raised. It's by far the most read letter of Paul's. It's the one that caused Jerusalem to be the most upset. Let me illustrate why. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, we and our mother is the Jerusalem, where? Above. There is a Jerusalem below whose children go into bondage. Now you just put yourself in that Jerusalem situation as a Pharisee loving the law and you hear something like this, this would infuriate them, just like Stephen infuriated Paul. And so here's what Galatians is called. If you want to write this in your uh, notes above Paul's most copied letter, it's called the Magna Carta of the church. It's the Magna Carta of the church. What I want you to see is, 
and, and make this in your notes up there. Galatians is his gospel in rough outline. And then write Romans is his gospel fleshed out. Galatians was written under intense pressure. Romans was carefully laid out in an atmosphere of peace and rest. And so he sends, and he begins to dictate Galatians. Now I want you to look at page 13, and you can see what we have there is there are six chapters, and I've highlighted some verses. And this is, again, as I said last night, this is where I wrestle. We're going to try to get through this, and we're going to take a break. Uh, this is where I've wrestled in this course, because Galatians, man, you can go verse by verse by verse by verse, and you can be there a long time. You don't want to quickly dismiss it. So what I'm going to give you is a few highlights that I feel have impacted my life, and we'll just talk about some of these. Uh, so let's, let's go to Galatians now in your Bibles. Galatians, Paul's first letter, written in 49 A.D. from Antioch. To these four churches. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ. Right there. Totally undercuts the accusation. He's not sent out by Jerusalem. Big deal. I'm glad I wasn't sent out by Jerusalem. I was sent out by Jesus Christ. I was appointed by Jesus Christ. Now, he has a fairly brief introduction in the first five verses. Uh, Look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever. Six. I'm amazed. The idea here in this word amazed is he's shocked. He's really stunned. These are young churches. uh, Maybe five, six months old. And they got quickly picked off. I'm amazed you are so quickly deserting him. Your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who called you by grace for a different gospel. Now, the idea of the word there, different gospel, would you write this down? Hybrid gospel. In other words, it's a mixed message. You can't mix the message. It's ultimately a false gospel. Now, this happened in the first church. I mean, Paul says in Corinthians and talks about another Jesus. Okay? Who's familiar with that verse? Another Jesus. Have you ever wondered what that looks like? Preaching another gospel. Paul calls them messengers of Satan. Proclaiming a message of righteousness that is false. How many of you remember the name Judson Cornwall? He was a powerful uh, teacher in the body of Christ, now in heaven. Iverna Tompkins is his sister. Judson was an incredible worship guy. He had a lot of revelation about worship. And I was at a worship conference in Minneapolis at Way of the Cross. Or no, uh, not Way of the Cross. um, The other guy, the the big Lutheran church there. What was his name? He's retired now. No, no, no. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But it's a huge... North Heights Lutheran Church, which is a strong charismatic church. And the pastor there was a lead 
a Lutheran charismatic guy. Anyway, we have a luncheon. There's five of us overseeing this conference. And Judson's giving this testimony. He says, not too long ago, I have a young man come in scared to death, asking for counsel. And I was drawn to this young man. I really felt bad for him. I says, what happened? He said, a few months ago, I went to a church. And for whatever reason, Judson Cornwall didn't tell us the church. But he said, he did say this. If I told you the church, you would know it. It's nationally known. He said, the young guy went to a Sunday night service in this church and at the altar call was giving, getting ready to present his life to Christ. The invitation was given. And as he's coming forward, there's an apparition, a vision, and that something like an angelic being standing next to the preacher. And all of a sudden, the hood's pulled back and it's a demon. This young guy freaks out totally, flees to his apartment, scared to death, has a Bible, starts reading John. And a couple days after reading John, actually gets saved in his apartment, still totally confused. Fast forward a couple of months to this conference where Judson Cornwall's at, and this young guy's requesting counsel. He said, what was that? That was another Jesus preaching another gospel and the mercy and grace of God spared you and then he counseled him with more truth and revelation. Church, in the last days, Matthew 24, when Jesus is asked about end times, what's the first thing he warns about? Deception. And he says there's going to be many false Christs, many false prophets, false apostles, Two weeks ago, there was a strange fire conference by John MacArthur in California. I, I, I listened. It doesn't, I'm not going to go there. But the point I'm saying is I'm going to be hosting a Berean meeting of leaders throughout Minnesota, December 12th. And we're going to look at some issues. And we're going to look at these issues of the true gospel, the mixed gospel, and, and so forth. And so Paul's greatest burden was for his gospel to be mixed, different, hybrid. And then look at what else he says in verse... Uh, Verse 8, but even though we are an angel from heaven, I don't care how supernatural it is, should preach to you a gospel contrary. Now, I have New American Standard, so in verse 8, would you make a note of the word contrary? Uh, if you have a different version to the Bible, what would be in your Bible instead of contrary? What does it say? Other than, excellent. Okay. Mike, what do you have? More than. More than. Okay, now that's exactly what contrary means. More than or other than. What Paul is saying concerning the gospel of grace. Don't let anybody add to it more than. That's legalism. Don't let anybody take away from it, which is license, taking advantage of grace. Those are contrary gospels. And what Paul is saying literally here. If someone, even myself, come and preach a different message than what you heard, or if it's an angel speaking the message, let him be accursed. Now, literally what that means is, let him go to hell. It's that strong. Because that's where that false message ultimately leads. So then Paul, what he does after, and he says this twice, by the way, in verse 8, and then uh, verse 9, he repeats it. And then he comes with this incredible statement for every preacher. Hey, listen, if I'm trying to please men, I'm dead in the water. 
I got to please the Lord. I don't know how many sermons that I have preached in the last 40 years. Probably too many. But I do know this. I won't give an account to you. When I get up there tomorrow morning, I'm going to speak what I think God wants to say to this church. That's a responsibility. Now, I feel called to do it, hopefully gifted to do it, but I will give an account for what I tell you people tomorrow in the name of Jesus Christ. So would you please, number one, pray for me, and number two, let's get it right. And let's preach the message that lines up with the gospel of Paul. The gospel of grace. How many love grace? The gospel of true grace. And Paul said, I don't care if it's an angel. I don't care who it is. I'm not going to try to please men. I'm going to please God. Then what he does, starting with verse 11, all the way through some of chapter 2, it's pretty much a testimony. It's pretty much... Uh, his story, and this is where you can take verses out of Galatians 1 and 2 and really put them into the book of Acts to complete the story, like when he went to Arabia. I want to zero in on verse 12. Listen, here's Paul's gospel. I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is true for you as well as Paul. I need to ask for a revelation of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. Who do people say that I am? The buzz was out. Some say this, some say that. Who do you say that I am? Do you understand? Your eternal destiny rests upon who you say He is. And based upon who you say he is determines your faith and trust in him. I don't know about you, but I'm putting all my eggs in Jesus' basket. I don't have a few eggs for Buddha. I don't have a few eggs for, for I forget the false god in the Muslim religion. What is it? Mohammed? Whatever. I'm got, I got them all in Jesus. How many say I got them all in Jesus? That's it. I, everything rests on Jesus Christ as far as I'm concerned. Who do you say that I am? Revelation of Jesus Christ. There's two-fold relationship here. First, you need a revelation that you are in Christ. And then you get a revelation that Christ is in you. Wow. That's not double talk. That's just two parallel tracks. You are in Christ. And Christ is in you. And I got it by revelation. Now, I can get fortified with teaching. I can get strengthened with anointed teachers and anointed elders. I can get buttressed and built up in my faith. But foundationally, this whole thing of salvation is very personal between you and Jesus Christ. This is why us parents who raise kids, there are no grandchildren in the kingdom. And so ultimately, those children have to have their own direct, don't they, revelation and encounter with Jesus Christ. Paul then goes and continues on with with his testimony. And then he gets into this thing, verse 11, when, when Peter comes to Antioch and I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul basically calls Peter, by the way, hypocrite, verse 13. Uh, hypocrisy is the word that is used here. And 
what I want you to see, starting with verse 14, about the middle of it, when he's addressing Zephyrus, now you got to understand, Paul is preaching this Galatian letter, and it's being written as he's preaching it. What he's doing here is he's remembering that day. And evidently, God gave him a really keen memory, because what he does, if you notice, now it's in my Bible, I assume it's in yours. Starting about the middle of verse 14, when he addresses Peter in the presence of them all, it goes into quotes. Do you see that in your Bible? It goes into quotes, and if you go to the end of chapter 2, to the end of chapter 2, it's still in quotes. So Paul remembers this quote, what he told Peter. And he's basically saying here, it's oil and water. You can't mix grace and you can't mix law. Peter, we're not justified by the works of the law, but only through faith in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and continues to talk about the challenges of the law. And then he says down to verse 19, For through the law I died to the law that I might live to Christ. Now, uh, next to verse 19, would you write Romans 7? Now, what Paul does here when he's talking about the law here is that he expands in Romans 7 with the dynamics of our relationship with the law. It was a killer. And here's what he says in Romans 7. Before you were saved, you were actually married to the law. You didn't know it. You maybe didn't even want it. But you were married to the law. And the marriage can only be broken with death. And if you're dead, you're free to remarry. And so what happened that day on Calvary is that you died. Because you're in Christ. So therefore, your relationship with the law was severed. And you're free to remarry Jesus Christ. Now here's the warning, and here's what we need to be alerted to. If I come back under any law, after I have been married to Christ, or engaged to Christ, what that means is literally I'm living with a mistress. And if I'm living with a mistress while engaged, ready to be married to Christ, if you read the Old Testament story where God looks at his people as his bride, God was always jealous whenever they went after other gods, whenever they went after other lovers. And so, Lord, and let's just agree right now with this incredible gospel of grace and the absolute free position I'm in, righteous before Christ, betrothed to Christ, presented to Christ, uh, a virgin in my very essence, spiritually speaking, that I'm going to keep my heart, guard my heart, and I'm going to give to Jesus on my wedding day to Him a pure heart. Amen. Now, sometimes we blow it. Sometimes we've messed up. I have, you have, we all have, and this is where the power of the blood comes. Say, thank you for the blood. And as we confess and get fresh cleansing and fresh forgiveness, we keep coming back to a place of innocence. All right. So Paul is saying, come on. And then you come to verse 20. Please memorize this. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, 
but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That is the gospel. Now, next to Galatians 2.20 in your notes, would you write these two scriptures down? And I want you to constantly compare these two. This will help your life because God wants you to see that day. Colossians 2, verses 7 to 15, and Romans 6. Romans 6. Colossians 2 and Romans 6 are Paul's apostolic expanding of Galatians 2.20. Over a period maybe of years, who knows. But he constantly was excited and caught up with that day. What a day. Wow. What a day. What happened that day? The absolute centerpiece of the entire universe that day. That was the day angels were shocked and held their breath. The night before that day, 10,000 angels had their swords half drawn and would have wiped out every human being in Jerusalem if they got one word. They were so infuriated at what was happening to Jesus Christ. That day was preceded by drinking a cup full of my sins and your sins to the dregs. That day was a crown of thorns hammered into his skull, a back shredded by a cat of nine tails. That day was beard ripped out, mockery and scorn, That day was nails driven into your wrists. Touching nerves that sent shocking waves of pain through your entire system. One through both feet. That day you watch your mother shattered emotionally in front of you. That day you listen to the curses of a religious elder brother, demon spirit. That day, all your followers have fled except one. That day, a spear comes, pierces your side. But out of that side comes a bride in the making. Just like the first Adam, the bride is released. The second Adam, out of that side. First comes blood, then comes water. First comes cleansing, Then comes life. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So when a sermon or a service is opened up and the minister almost flippantly sometimes, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Be careful. That day is a whole lot deeper. And you know the context of that day? It's the builders that have rejected the chief cornerstone. The builders who build self-righteous religion. The builders who build and try to build the work of God. The builders who actually killed Christ. They're called builders by Peter in Acts 4. They're called builders in Acts 7 by Stephen trying to build the temple made with human hands. This is the day that the Lord has made. That is God's response to the futility of human building. 
and religious bogus works. This is the day that the Lord has made. How in the world did I stumble into that? <laughs> That's the latest message I've been preaching in the body of Christ. I'm not going to preach it tomorrow. There's, there's, six, there's seven days God has made for you. That's the most important one. Calvary. That day you died. Brian, you died that day. Can you see it? You died that day. The Lord made that day for you. The day you got saved was a day the Lord made. The day you got baptized with the Holy Spirit was the day the Lord made. There's another day coming in the future called the day of the Lord. When everything will be made right. And the lamb is now a lion. And mercy now also is accompanied by justice. And everybody gets what they deserve. Saved and unsaved. This is the day that the Lord has made. So what Paul is saying, Galatians 2.20, that is his day. And then he culminates it with verse 21. He says, listen, just logically think it through. If it was possible for a law to release life and for you to somehow follow whatever law it was to release life, don't you think God the Father would have done it? That's what he's saying there in verse 21. If a law could do it, then all this is Christ died needlessly. Now he gets really pastoral starting with chapter 3. You know what that word literally is there? You idiots. <laughs> foolish, foolish, foolish Galatians. What in the world are you doing? Whose eyes... Who's bewitched you? That word bewitched there has the idea of a snake charmer. Who enticed you? Who waved in front of your eyes and captured your heart with a false, bogus message? Listen, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you a simple question. Did all the miracles that happened in my first visit, you know, remember when people got healed and people got saved and people got delivered of demons? Did all that happen? Because you were following some law or because you were responding with faith to the message of grace? Oh, Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you going to end in the flesh? Look at Abraham. And he goes into Abraham. Abraham was right with God because of grace and faith. Abraham had a covenant relationship with God based upon grace and faith. And this covenant relationship is incredibly awesome. Now, why did the law come? Well, the law came 400 years after Abraham. But the law does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified with Abraham. And oh, by the way, with the covenant that Abraham had with God, it was given as a promise to his seed, singular. And when that seed comes, everything's operational. And the seed is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. Does it say ratified? Is that the verse? Did I get it right? Yep. I'm not going to look at my notes. For, it doesn't matter. Is that what it says? Verse 15? Ratified. All right. New covenant, New Testament. That's like a will. How many here have a will? I still got to get one. Probably getting close to getting one. Who has a will? Do you have a will? 
You got a little one. All right. The will is what? A declaration of intent. A declaration, a written document where your will is expressed. It's called a will, a testament, a covenant. But it's sealed up, it's locked up, and it's not operational until when? Till you die. Well, praise God. He died. Therefore, the covenant is ratified. The will is operational. So here's what Paul is saying. It's a covenant of grace and faith based upon uh, the righteousness of God, grace and faith that God established with Abraham. You can't add to that. Don't add to it. Don't add legalism. Don't give me your silly rules. Don't give me your silly, self-righteous, good, try-harder behavior. I'm not impressed. In fact, God goes so far as to say in Isaiah, your religious festivals are actually a stench in my nostrils. I'm not impressed. You can't build a house for me. I'll build a house for you. Somebody say good news. Grace. It's been ratified. Can't change it. It's already been opened up. Well, Paul, why in the world did he give the law in the first place? Ah, that was, that was an, uh, an insertion parenthetically into salvation history just to magnify sin. It was kind of like a tutor. It actually pointed out your faults even more. It's an expression of God's will. It's an expression of God's holiness. But God never intended to save by the law. And once the promised seed comes, the law is no longer in force. This is what Stephen saw. It's what got him killed. It's new covenant. It's new age. In the right sense. (laughs) And that's why Paul makes this incredible declaration, Galatians 3.26, in this covenantal relationship, there's neither male nor female, there's neither free or slave, there's neither Jew or Greek, you are all one adopted son's in Jesus Christ. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Amen. Chapter 4, he gets into the revelation of adoption. He goes even deeper. You have the spirit of adoption. There's something within your heart that cries out, Abba, Abba, Father, child of God. The greatest thing that will get you through the greatest trial of your life is the heart cry, Abba, Father. He'll come running, well, running. He comes to you as your loving Father to rescue and be your hero. He goes on from the adoption, revelation. He makes this appeal. Why would you want to turn back to elementary things? Where Paul really got frustrated with the Gentiles is they never really knew the law. They didn't know anything about the festivals. They had no background. They had no historical context. He said, what in the world are you doing? You're going to elementary spirits, new moons and Sabbaths, all things which are shadow reflecting substance. You're leaving substance to go back to shadow. When I go home tomorrow, I see my wife and she greets me and it's a sunny day. Trust me, I have no desire to embrace her shadow. I'm going to embrace substance. Thank you very much. And then he goes on in chapter 5, verse 1, one of my most favorite verses. Come on. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Child of God, when we get to heaven someday, you know what's going to happen? We're going to be absolutely blown away by the depth and degree and power of the freedom in heaven. God loves to throw a party. And there's a lot of joy, a lot of freedom. 
he gets into that Jerusalem thing in chapter 4, above and below. And then he says, you want to try to get circumcised? Christ is of no benefit to you. We're in serious trouble. Then in verse 11, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. What would those who are troubling, would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves? <laughs> Tongue in cheek. This is strong stuff. You know what Paul's saying there? You want to preach circumcision? Why do a little knife thing? Why don't you castrate? Which is what mutilate means. He's upset. He's not happy here with the distortion of his message. And then he gets into a very practical pastoral thing, by the way, verse 16, because one of the charges against Paul was with his grace message, well, that's going to release people to sin. This was the charge in Romans. Well, if that's how grace works, let's sin all the more. No, 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 you're missing the whole point. Grace of God releases within you the ability of God to live victoriously. He gets into this thing about spirit and flesh war that's going on. And then he says in verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now I love that verse and always keep that verse in that order. Those who belong crucify flesh. It's not crucify in order to earn the right to belong. It's because you understand you belong. You get so intoxicated with the beauty of Christ. You're so in love with Jesus Christ. You are willing to be separated and severed from flesh. Sins. And then chapter 6 is about kind of restoring brethren. And, and he sends the letter off. He ends up, by the way, with new creation, boasting in the cross. Verse 14, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of Christ. The world has been crucified to me, I to the world, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You know what Paul does now? He calms down. There's atmosphere in the room, presence. Silas is in that room, stunned. Barnabas is in that room, weeping. And here's what Paul says make four copies, send four letters to four churches, send them by horse so they get there quicker. And he waits. He doesn't know how they will respond. They could blow him off. So he waits. No doubt prays. And we'll pick up our story in five minutes. <laughs>